Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the first of what I call the Division Capsule episodes of Real GM Radio. That is a combination off-season review and upcoming season preview. And we're going to start out with the Atlantic Division with Jared Weiss of The Athletic and Jared Dubin of 538 and many outlets. I wanted to put this one out first. I actually have three of these recorded because it is the most time sensitive. Of course, we don't know if or when something is going to happen with Kevin Durant, Donovan Mitchell, Kyrie Irving, any of those, none of them, who knows? So this is a moment in time podcast. We'll see how things change, of course, but really fun one, a little bit under an hour brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. Here's the pod. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you for putting two Jareds together just to make this as efficient as possible. <laughs> it It's always a pleasure. And this is a, a, like, I mean, part of why this is complicated is because we think there are still going to be further moves in the Atlantic Division, potentially Donovan Mitchell related, <laughs> but I'm going on vacation. We have to record this ahead of time. And so we're kind of treating this as, we're treating it as it is right now. And the place to start, and I think we can begin with Mr. Dubin, is I like to begin this with a basic question for for these five teams. Who do you think got better and who do you think got worse? So, first of all, I'm considering responding to Weiss and letting him respond to Dubin, um, just so we can make everybody really confused throughout the rest of the podcast. Um, Second, I think the thing you brought up is the most important thing, where it seems like this whole division is, like, very unfinished. Not just with the Knicks and the potential Donovan Mitchell trade, but also the Nets and the potential KD and Kyrie trades, which could potentially involve the Raptors and or Celtics, depending on, you know, who's reporting you decide to believe at a given moment. So there's just a whole lot that we really don't know about what these teams are going to look like on opening night yet. All of that said, I think everybody got better except for the Nets so far, based on what we've seen throughout this offseason. You know, the Celtics added uh, Gallo and Brogdon. The Knicks added Brunson and Isaiah Hartenstein. Um, the Sixers added P.J. Tucker, Daniel House, D'Anthony Melton. And the Raptors added Otto Porter. And I think all of those teams got better. And then you look at the Nets, and it's like they lost Bruce Brown and they're probably maybe going to lose one or both of KD and Kyrie. So I think it's kind of clear cut in terms of who got better and got worse. Well, the Nets added Royce O'Neal, so I feel like this is a lot of revisionist history, but we'll, we'll let it go for now. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I mean, we, since we're taping this on August 9th, we should just call this the Sixers season preview featuring other teams. Um, <laughs> but 
I mean, I think what what is good about this is that I don't think any of these teams are going to change drastically in their position because let's say the Knicks execute the Donovan Mitchell trade. I don't think that catapults them above like where the Celtics and the Sixers are at this point. The Celtics are already at the top pretty much of the of the East right now. If they make the KD trade, it, it probably only elevates them a little bit more. And then Brooklyn, the Brooklyn's the real wild card here. I mean, Toronto obviously, but I think Toronto is going to be competitive no matter what. Uh, with Brooklyn, I, I don't know. Like they're going to get better than last year's team, regardless of how this KD deal plays out and potentially a Kyrie deal. Although from everything we're hearing, it sounds like Kyrie is going to come back to Brooklyn unless the Lakers are willing to cough up a second draft pick, which they have not been willing to do this offseason. So it seems like Kyrie most likely is coming back to Brooklyn right now. But like Brooklyn getting Simmons back, getting Harris back, hopefully, hopefully Seth Curry is healthy. Like they're going to be a pretty good team, I presume, no matter what, especially if they could land a deal that gets them an all-star and another good starter for Durant. I guess it depends if we're talking about, like, are they going to have a better roster? Are they going to have a better record? Like, I think it's pretty likely they'll have a better record. But, I mean, if KD is not on this team, they're not going to be a better team, right? Right. I mean, even even if, to me, even if they're trading Kevin Durant for another player who helps them now, which is one of the theories of the case that Sean Marks might use, they're, yeah, I mean, Durant's really good. But they had so many absences last year, you know. Not only, I mean, they had Harden for part of the year, but then... Harden was gone and they replaced him with a player who didn't play at all because Ben Simmons got hurt ramping up and Joe Harris had a lost year. So yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fair. The record versus roster distinction there. And I also think that the point about there is a lot of flux in this division, but it doesn't necessarily change where kind of where they fit into the overall East and arguably the overall like kind of NBA slash title picture. I think that's a salient one. My the only one and, and you mentioned this is if Toronto added Durant, you know, like that would because potentially that would be trading future talent for present talent, and the Raptors are already good, so that would make a significant difference. It wouldn't be the first time they've done that, and it could work out really well. My instinct is that deal doesn't happen, but it, I wouldn't put it past Masai Ujiri in the absolute slightest. And I, so, but I agree with Dubin's point that the the Nets, like, if you look at the, the kind of like players in, players out of their roster during the offseason, you know, not focusing on the players who were hurt and everything else. Like, I mean, the the key parts there is that they added Royce O'Neal and then they lost Bruce Brown. I think that's kind of one way of putting part of this. And obviously there's a million TPDs in there. And they also added TJ Warren. We'll see what what he can provide. I'd love for him to be healthy enough to do it. And so, like, you know, I think Brown helps them more than O'Neal. O'Neal, it's it's hilarious. Like, I focused a lot on the the Bucks not kind of identifying that Joe Harris to me, or sorry, Joe Ingles, apologies, uh, different Joe. Um, Joe Ingles looked, to me, Joe Ingles looked limited even before he got hurt. And I think, like, Royce O'Neal, there's this weird thing that the Jazz were so stable the last few years that it feels like some people didn't notice that their guys took a step back. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, we've all been talking about the decline and the disaster of the Jazz perimeter defense for, you know, the last, I guess, like two years at this point. But I don't think people have attributed that to the specific individual players. Like, it's just the Jazz perimeter defense. And it's not, you know, uh, Ingles and O'Neal and Conley and Mitchell that people talk about. 
and I mean, O'Neill was like, they, they felt like with O'Neill, it's like they had their guy. And most of these defenses that are very much system based are like funneling into the big base. As much as you can do, uh, to, you know, have like a center like Rudy Gobert cover for that, you still need to have your guy who can at least just disrupt the basic funneling system. And it didn't feel like they were getting that from him at all. Right. Like that was, I think that's what made everyone so surprised that they had to pay, that Brooklyn had to pay a first for him. Right. And especially well, I think what made people surprised was that it happened like six minutes after the KD <laughs> wants to be traded news broke. And then, you know, Windhorse got on all of his Swami stuff. And uh, then obviously everything came to and it's now like the greatest meme of all time. <laughs> well, it, I think that ties in with, to me, one of the most interesting subplots of the of this division, as we talk about it right now, is like part of the reason a lot of these teams got better is that they didn't really lose anyone. Like you think about the Boston Celtics. They added Brogdon. They added Gallinari. They didn't really lose anyone of note from last year's team. The Raptors didn't lose anyone of note from last year's team. I talked about the kind of, you could call it the O'Neal for Bruce Brown. And, you know, they lost Drummond and Dragic, who had, and, and we'll see what happens with Blake Griffin off of that team. And, like, even the Knicks, like, the Knicks had to shed some salary in terms of Kemba and Alec Burks and Nerlens Noel in order to add the space to sign Jalen Brunson and do the other things they did. But, like, and... and this is kind of a similar story with the Sixers as well, that the Sixers, you know, how they opened up the wiggle room to get to get PJ Tucker and House was by James Harden taking less money. It wasn't by having to say some painful goodbyes. Yeah, it was by Michael Rubin working his magic by apparently not being an owner anymore. Um, <laughs> with, uh, I mean, with the Knicks, like the only one of the three guys that they got rid of that was really a contributor last year was Burks. And I think that playing him out of the role that he should have been playing probably hurt more than it helped. Um, two years ago, he was uh, a really good, like, peace filling sort of six man type for them. Last year, he was like starting at the point for half the season. That just did not work well at all. Um, but the, the Sixers, I think the other thing is um, Danny Green was the other guy that they had. To oh, play, yeah, that's fair. He was going to be out for the year likely anyway because what he tore his ACL in, what, May, June, something like that. So he wasn't going to play this season anyway, I don't think. Right, and, and presumably if that Melton trade hadn't materialized, they would have just let him go. So it yeah, is a he had like a partial guarantee or a non-guarantee? I believe it was that? non-guaranteed, but then they upped that kind of like Gallinari had a partial and they upped that too to make the uh, to make the DeJounte Murray deal happen. I believe it was something kind of similar to that, except it was a non-guarantee to a guarantee. And actually, that ties in. So the next thing we want to talk about with you guys is a move that stood out to you, but I want to initiate that with one that I just invoked very briefly, which was like kind of in some ways one of the weirder, one of the more different ones, which was Philly giving up a first-round pick and the, you know, guaranteeing part of Danny Green's contract in order to get DeAnthony Melton. And I was talking about this with Nate Duncan earlier in the week, and we were getting into this idea, or maybe that was last week, about how part of the sales pitch for Melton might be, he he's not the same as Matisse Thibault, but he doesn't bring the offensive baggage. And so the idea that you can have somebody who can be on ball, who could be disruptive, but also doesn't kill your offense, that could be very important for Philly. I mean, I, I like it better than Danny Green, uh, a healthy Danny Green at this point, especially just at the age. I feel like by the end of this season, I feel like he's going to be more valuable. So I like that as just a an up, 
upgrade play anyway, regardless of green situation. And I think it's also just good for them to feel like they're both loading up for now while also bringing in pieces that they expect to grow so that it doesn't feel like every single year is their last best shot. And doing that with him and Daniel House, who turned things around last year to kind of set himself back on a good pace for his career. I mean, obviously, they still have they did bring in Tucker, so they still have at least one guy whose career is you know ticking pretty loudly. But they at least it feels like their core is aligned to grow with uh, Embiid in his prime and with Harden still holding on to whatever's left of his prime. So it just feels like Philadelphia's runway is a little bit smoother than it is what was before they made that. I do think they, they probably still need to get some shooting. That's the one area that Green would have helped them more um, than any of the three guys that they added this offseason, I think. You know, if House can shoot like he did in Houston, um, then potentially that mitigates it somewhat. But Melton can shoot, but I don't think he's really treated as a shooter by opposing defenses. And he's not like a, you know, nearly 40% guy like Green is, uh, you know, in his good seasons anyway. So it is a little bit different. And now, you know, I, I guess playing a little bit bigger with Tucker, Harris, and Embiid, presumably, on the front line. Um, I do think it adds to the importance of needing shooters out there. Yeah, I mean, the big distinction with Danny Green is that he's he's shooting on the move, he's shooting above the break a lot. Like, Melton, his value is mostly stationary in the corner, um, which is also what Tucker's value is. So, hey, maybe they're just going to recreate the Rockets from a couple years ago and just spread everything out around Maxi and Harden with Embiid flowing through the middle, which maybe that's the best way to do it is just to try to pin down the defense out towards the corners as much as possible and dominate that mid-range area and that paint area. I agree with Dubin that I would love to see a movement shooter on this team in the roster. And like, I mean, they have a couple of rolls of the dice on that and guys like Isaiah Joe, but I'm not sure they're going to be, and Korkmaz, I mean, conceptually could do it, but um, I don't know that they're quite at that level. I'll, I'll lean first on, so one of the other ones that I definitely want to discuss here is the Malcolm Brogdon acquisition. And so my question to you, Mr. Weiss, is what what is your vision from from what you either know like through reporting or just as an analyst for how the Celtics intend for Brogdon to fit into this overall rotation kind of roster? Okay, well, first, thank you for calling me Mr. Weiss. I appreciate the respect. <laughs> uh, I think that answering that is really interesting because one, we don't know if Marcus Smart or Derek White is going to be there sure. uh, in a few in a, in a couple months. So that's obviously a huge part of the equation. But I think they're looking at this as we we. We want to have a rotation of, of, of two ball handlers out, out there as much as we can alongside the Jays and a big or starting in two bigs. I think that's what Boston's thinking. And Brogdon is probably not going to play most back-to-backs and they're probably going to try to keep his minutes down around 30 or a little bit below 30 so and and they can they can use him at the one and the two you know when when he's out there with a Derek White or a Marcus Smart distinguishing who the point guard is doesn't really matter too much they're going to take turns on that they're going to you know they're going to kind of switch it up they're going to play similar roles complementing each other and then defensively they're going to switch so much that it's not going to matter so I think that they're looking at it with Brogdon as Brogdon is a great value play for the way that they operate because they can they can basically just focus in on the strengths and cover up some of his we- some of his weaknesses and they can pace him just enough 
that it's not going to push him over the edge into fatigue and then potential injury. Um, and so that's why, I mean, they only paid a first for him. I actually was surprised to see that a lot of people in the league thought that they were surprised that Indiana even got a first round pick for him. Uh, so I guess that's how concerned people are with the injury stuff. But with him, they, they, they need him to play less than pretty much any other team would need him to play. So he has the best chance of staying healthy in Boston. Yeah. I view it basically as like, <clears throat> like what if we had Derek White, but bigger and also so what if we had Marcus Smart, but less prone to boneheaded mistakes and a more consistent shooter? And it's like, all right, let's add that to our backcourt rotation is kind of how I view it. Like it, it's it's kind of a bonus for them, whatever he can bring, because obviously we already know that they're a really good team and they're just like adding another guy who could do all of the stuff they like their guards to do. Right, and part of why I'm impressed with the Brogdon trade from the Celtics' perspective is is that flexibility that we were talking about before, where there's a chance that Derek White or Marcus Smart isn't here, and Brogdon doesn't do, I would say, his highest, his his best things aren't as good as those two, but his worst things aren't necessarily as bad, and so that means, but he's kind of in certain ways a similar role, and so that means that if you end up wanting to move one or both of them, or just on a more basic standpoint, let's say they're keeping all those guys, they don't get Kevin Durant or anything like that, then depending on who you're playing and what the moment is, you can put out the players who make the most sense. And that leads me to the question of, will Ime Odoka have a standard closing five, or are these players, is he okay with being a little bit more malleable there? Yeah, he's he's been pretty malleable, and I mean, part of it was they had a whole just growth process finding that that closing five early in the year. They were forcing Dennis Schroeder in there when it didn't make sense, and eventually they found that figuring out the hot hand between the rotation of Horford, Rob Williams, and Grant Williams to complement their you know main backcourt or main perimeter guys that was the way to go, and. I just, I just feel like they're going to probably continue to close with one big and then whoever has it going offensively late in games. And I think what's interesting is White, as much as it seemed like he was an institution in their closing lineup, they were willing to take him out when he just, when like he was not hitting a shot and the defense was completely abandoning him. And they also were willing to take Smart out of the closing lineup at times where it made sense for them to have another shooter out there and have White because White was playing so well. So uh, Udoka has been willing to do whatever it takes around the Jays to find the hot hand that night. Um, I, I think though the important thing is while he is going to be malleable, he still needs to have relative consistency. Like that, that team got good at the end because he shortened that rotation and he made it pretty consistent. And of course, it was just a little too short for the stretch run to try to climb back into it. So they burned out eventually if they got to the very end of the playoff run. Um, and I think the the idea here is that this team's not going to have any burnout because the team is so deep and so balanced and they can mix things up enough that like, hey, if a guy is just exhausted that night, they don't necessarily need him. They have other options. Yeah, I would say um, it, it's, it's definitely easy for them to be pretty malleable given all of the guys that they have sometimes in rare situations um, having too many guys can be an issue because you wind up with a coach that is, you know, addicted to playing one of the wrong guys. Like I'm thinking about like the, the Warriors playing Damian Lee when they could have just not been doing that. Um, that's one thing you do have to guard against at times. But I think Udoka showed last year that he's going to push the right buttons more often than not. So I don't necessarily have, you know, too much of a worry about that happening. It, it also can create tension with the players not being chosen regularly, but it helps when you're winning. And so the Celtics not only being, 
I would expect a very, very good regular season team, but also having these postseason aspirations will, and plus, you know, like Brogdon having a real injury history, I think that that will make it more tolerable for whoever gets closed out. Now, if it ends up being Marcus Smart more regularly, eh, could be, could be a little bit there. But as, as we talked about before, there's a possibility that he's not even there. Yeah. And I think, well, the tough thing he has to negotiate is so, you know, Gallinari, they got him to sign by making it clear to him. He's, you're going to be getting 20 plus minutes a game. You're going to be getting an important role. But like they already have Grant Williams, who is playing for a contract at this point. I mean, maybe he reaches an extension before the season, but I'd be surprised if that happens considering the way the cap structure the, uh, for next offseason. So they have guys that are playing for contracts or guys that are that were given assurances in order to come. We know Smart is going to want to be closing out these games regularly. And then um, Brogdon is interesting because he was pretty clear that he's coming to Boston and he's ready to sacrifice because he's already gotten pretty much all the opportunities opportunity and the money that he needs he wants to be part of a winning system so he's willing to take a step back but if he's never closing games out like there's no way he's going to be down with that he's not going to be happy I think, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the other kind of biggest move that we need to talk about here is is the addition of Jalen Brunson. And incidentally, that's something Jared Dubin and I have talked about previously on Real GM Radio. But it is it is a very important thing. And it was interesting. I was working through this with somebody rec- with, with Nate recently. And the, yeah, Brunson it is a significant number, especially for a guy who's never made an all-star game and who, who may never. I mean, that's a distinct possibility. But... A, because it is front-loaded, and B, because of where the salary cap is going, I, A, don't think the contract is bad. Like, I think it's actually a totally reasonable, reasonable contract. But also, like, I think the more interesting question is, where does he fit with this iteration of the Knicks and potentially alternate iterations of the Knicks? Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about it before, as you said. I don't think that the, the contract is particularly offensive. It's like the 14th or 15th highest salary for a starting point guard and that seems pretty reasonable to me the the issue i have is that the the Knicks roster as currently constructed doesn't really put him in position to succeed because they don't have the kind of shooting that he was surrounded with in dallas and you know his thing is you know even though he's a good shooter he doesn't shoot you know pull up threes all that often and he doesn't shoot off the catch all that often he tends to do most of his work with like herky-jerky kind of drives into the paint and up fakes and up and unders and all this different kind of stuff and when you have Mitchell Robinson always on the court or Isaiah Hardenstein always on the court or Jericho Sims always on the court there's just going to be more guys in the lane and he is you know he's shown that he can finish in traffic but I do think it's quite a bit more traffic based on you know the roster that the Knicks have and the way the coach is going to play that roster. You know, Fred Katz has talked about it a few times. Like, it's entirely possible that nobody spends more time within, like, one step of the paint in the entire league than Mitchell Robinson. He basically never leaves that area. And for a guy who is so paint-based as Brunson is, I do think it's going to be a little bit more difficult for him to finish inside. Like, he's certainly going to be better than what they've had at the point the last couple seasons between Elford Payton and then, you know, Kemba not playing well last season and then Burks playing out of position at point guard. But it's going to be interesting to see how much of the, you know, really good finishing oversize and in traffic gets a affected by the pieces surrounding him and then you know the the rest of the team it's like it's they have a bunch of small guards now between him Derek Rose is well like 6263 something like that um and is you know basically a lock to get hurt for a significant stretch of the season at this point obviously Emmanuel quickly is pretty short 6162 something like that 
if and when they trade for Donovan Mitchell, also 6-1. Um, you know, depending on who goes out in that deal, they might have like one wing left on the entire team, basically. Yeah. Like, if, if they send out, for example, like both Fournier and Grimes in that deal, the only wing on the roster would be R.J. Barrett. So, or I guess if you want to count Cam Reddish as a wing, I don't particularly <laughs> count Cam Reddish as much of anything, but it's entirely possible he could go out in uh, a Donovan Mitchell deal, too. So I'd be surprised um, if he stayed. Yeah, Brunson himself, I think, is you know a pretty good signing, but I'm concerned about the, the roster surrounding him in terms of putting him in position to succeed, and then what the coach is going to do with that roster, because he's never going to do something like, you know, have like Toppin as the only big on the court, and like play Barrett at the four to, you know, replicate the kind of spacing that, you know, that Brunson had in Dallas. That's just not going to happen. I feel like the Brunson-Robinson thing would work in Dallas. Like, Brunson could get into the mid-range and then lob it up to Robinson flashing in from the dunker spot. That sounds like a nice idea if Julius Randle is not clogging the, the mid-post area. So it's like, I just don't know. I don't know how like, you... I think Brunson and Hardenstein make... works too. Like, dribble handoffs, Hardenstein's yeah. a good passer, but then you run into, like, nobody's going to guard Randle like a shooter. Nobody's going to guard necessarily Barrett as a shooter un- unless he goes back to hitting, like, 40% like he did a couple years ago. Like, it's just, uh, it's difficult. Well, it, and that ties in with something that Jared and I have talked about before, which is... I have no idea how in the world this Knicks offense is going to flow because not only is it the who's involved in the primary action and who isn't, because if Julius Randle is not in it, A, he's going to be pissed off. B, you don't have to defend him the same way. But And it's the same sort of thing with the non-shooting big. If they're not in the action, then they're standing right around the basket. And then you combine that with this team having a million different left-handed people. And so... <laughs> The geometry of the floor, the flow of the offense are just extremely hard to assess. And we'll get a better sense in October, but I, I, there have, there has not been a team that I can think of where I can just straight up not underst- like not understand how it's going to work. I wrote about this in the, the 538 when we did our um, like free agency roundup. So Brunson and Randall tend to operate on the left side of the floor more often than not. But Barrett is a, a lefty that actually likes to be on the right side of the floor. So I think that that pairing uh, of him and Brunson would work out pretty well, especially because Barrett has been really good at making right corner threes. That's like the one place that he shoots the best from. And then having him come off of like a down screen on that side so he can use his strength to get through a guy as opposed to having to shake them on his own when he's beating a closeout. That works pretty well for him too. But Randall liking to set up shop on the same side of the court as Brunson and also potentially not being involved in the primary action could make things fairly difficult. And then depending on whether, you know, Fournier is A, on the team or B, starting over Grimes, um, you might have, a, you know, another guy working in, you know, sort of similar areas because he tends to come off from the left side of the floor moving right. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a whole lot of, you know, guys that don't necessarily fit perfectly together, even if, you know, I, I think they certainly upgraded their talent base. It's just, I don't know that I have faith in the coaching staff to figure out how this is going to work offensively. Plenty more still to discuss about the Atlantic Division with Jared's Weiss and Dubin, but first a message from Bet Online. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports, contests, and events with first to market odds and lines. Find reviews and news of every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, esports, and even golf. Bet Online continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information from live in game betting, props, and features 
So use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. You can do that by heading to BetOnline today, or you can use your mobile device to join and make your first sports bet. And again, use that promo code CLNS50 to receive your first a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit, and of course, to tell them that you came from us. So check it out at Bet Online, where the game starts. I'll open up the floor to both of you in terms of, like, I mean, we've talked about a fair amount of it. Are there any other tr- off-season moves that the Atlantic Division teams made that you think we should discuss in, in further depth? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, so, the, the Nets trading for Royce O'Neal and signing TJ Warren, like, those are the moves you make if you're keeping KD and Kyrie. Right. And I just, I don't know, it's just it's just very weird to me. I don't know what to think about them right now. And I, I do think it's worth discussing the Knicks um, spending a bunch of money on a backup center last year, having it not work out, and then going and spending a bunch of money on two centers this year, um, first to bring in Hartenstein as the backup and then to retain Mitchell Robinson. Um, I'm very curious if they view Robinson as he's going to be our starting center at $15 million a year for the next four years, or if they view him as we didn't want to lose him for nothing and having a $15 million a year salary is pretty good for the future. Um, I think that given the the staff, it's probably the former, but I would sort of like it to be the latter. <laughs> I kind of I kind of see it as they're looking at the way the cap is going to, to skyrocket over the next couple of years, and they're thinking Robinson is basically going to be making the MLE after this season. At, you know, 15 mil is going to be pretty close to the MLE at that point, and that just makes them so much more movable. because And also, it gives them a chance to at least give some sort of safety valve to Brunson and just give him a lob threat, and they're probably looking at some of these teams that have had success with athletic fives living out of the dunker spot. Uh, and maybe that's just a good way to kind of usher in a point guard into your system. But like the, everybody around the league was just kind of laughing at that contract. At least people that I talked to around the league, they were kind of laughing at that one and shaking their head at it. Uh, because they rushed to give him the deal and it didn't really seem like there was a market to outbid there, especially with, we saw the way that the market shrunk on some, on so many players this offseason. It just didn't seem like they were really bidding against anybody to get to that number. I'm sure they were. It's not like they're completely incompetent, I presume, but it, it just, it didn't make, it was just like yet again, the Knicks jumping at signing a guy above market value when you didn't even have to do that because of the way that the market was shaped. Like, there were other options you could have had for cheaper, like for example, Isaiah Hartenstein, who I I would probably rather have him than Mitchell Robinson. There's some scheme dependence there, but I think Hartenstein had a better year than Robinson did. There's like I mean, I, I think that White Weiss, your theory about or, or actually I can't remember which of you that was about kind of having a second middle, but yeah, that was that was Weiss about where things are where things are going is is really important here, and that ties in with the other kind of part of the Knicks offseason that I find so fascinating. Which is that they used cap space, like they made some real moves here, but they also structured the Brunson and Mitchell Robinson, their two biggest like dollar signings, as front loaded, and they had the latitude to do that. And what that does is it takes away a lot of the like if you, you could say the like potential sting of that because Brunson after this first season he's making twenty five twenty six million a year with a player option for that you know thirty year after the current year. And then Mitchell Robinson making, you know, roughly MLE money and descending. So how that affects, you know, theoretically a, I don't think it's as much a Donovan Mitchell trade because A, those guys aren't really tradable right now. And B, because, you know, you're kind of trying to fit them in. 
But the idea, and we brought up Fred Katz before, that Fred Katz has brought up, which is that theoretically, in a you know, in a world where the Knicks are trying to make another addition in something in the twenty twenty four to twenty five range, then you have these guys under contract, and they probably weren't going to open up cap space in the first place if they're bringing in Donovan Mitchell or somebody else before then. So having kind of filler salaries of guys that can actually play that also aren't under contract for too long is actually a really smart move if you can pull it off. That was sort of the idea of their signings last year, too. It was. They needed to to get rid of those guys right away instead of, like, they had to attach assets to uh, Noel and Burks to get rid of them. I think if they had waited until the deadline to move those guys as functionally expiring contracts that also potentially add an additional year of team control because of the team options that were attached to them. I think specifically with Burke, they could have actually gotten assets for him at the deadline if they had held on to him. Noel, I'm a little more skeptical about just because that big of a salary attached to a guy who like could be like a buyout center, essentially. I don't think they would have necessarily got would have gotten positive value there. But the, the idea of we have to get rid of these guys now because we do something else is what prevented them from being positive value, I think. The other big one I want to discuss, we talked about kind of the big picture of the Sixers offseason, but P.J. Tucker, even if the Sixers don't need a small ball center quite the same way as other teams do because Joel Embiid is so great that you're not going to have him off the floor. You know, this isn't a situation like we've seen with the Warriors or uh, versions of the Rockets, too, where you, you really need that guy or depending on how you see the Bucks those last couple of years. But I still think Tucker can really help them as a defensive player, as somebody who is a low usage but kind of capable at what he does type of wing. And we know forwards are so essential to running a playoff rotation. It would be really... Any center who can play behind Embiid is an improvement for them, whether it's small ball or regular style. Um, although, you know, Doc Rivers did tell us that uh, Paul Reed actually was the backup center against small ball teams all season. So everybody who said that he wasn't uh, obviously is wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, feelings over facts always, uh, but or I guess jokes over facts in that case. But uh, I, I just love the idea that Philly is looking at Harden and thinking, let's like we should only have a plotting center in the middle of the lane if it's someone who is going to be an offensive hub otherwise we just want to spread out as much as possible and they also just like they have a bulldog defender in the front court which is something i think they really needed and we saw last year like tucker was really continues to be very useful in a bunch of different ways defensively and i think they just they needed somebody to bring that intimidation factor in the front court that they just weren't getting and someone that also just shoots well enough that they can have their defensive specialists out there and not worry about the offense being compromise so i i do i do really like their structure uh even if i am very nervous about whether harding can still perform at the top level it just at least feels like this team is calibrated around Embiid in a way that gives them a chance to actually win that's a great point and i was excited about this offseason from philly because he gave daryl morey like he knew the constraints going in this is a james harden joel Embiid team in the other order but still and so what makes the most sense around them and adding through partially through Harden's short-term financial sacrifice, adding not only Melton and P.J. Tucker, but adding Daniel House. Like, this team makes a lot more sense than they did before. And one of the other huge perks of P.J. Tucker, and there have been numerous examples of this over the years, including P.J. Tucker last year, 
is that they also took him away from these other teams that they're competing with potentially for the for the East crown. And that's great, too, because there aren't that many P.G. Tuckers existing within the NBA world. Did Harden really take a financial sacrifice? Like, Short term. What did Michael Rubin give him? Come on. Eh, I mean, here, here's what I'll say on that. I, I mean, there's obviously complicated factors in play here. But one of the things that the NBA truly cares about is that that player's payments you could say there's some nebulous stuff with shoe stuff that that it that it's that there isn't a like huge competitive balance problem and i mean that there's a reason why the thing the league has come down the hardest in modern vintage was the joe smith deal and that was because it was basically a team trying to game the system and use in that case it was basically like future payments to to do it and they and also like from what we know kevin McHale and the wolves got too brazen about it and it was it was a little bit too too cut and dry how it was going to be so i i i think that it is it is in the dots are super easy to connect but proving it getting there i think i think they'll be i think they're smart enough to have navigated that yeah i mean they're gonna get hit with some sort of tampering penalty but i don't think it's gonna be like oh harden's getting paid under the table well let's see if he gets a lexus endorsement deal all of a sudden then maybe we'll know there's like a two hundred thousand dollar fine coming here's my prediction the knicks get a larger tampering penalty than the sixers do i would not be surprised even if it's probably harder to prove that they tampered um just because i don't think that's the only thing that the league is not particularly happy with the Knicks about. Right. And the com- the complication of hiring your top free agent target's father, even if he's an accomplished assistant coach in his own right, like I there there are a couple of things there that I could see the league being seeing seeing more of a big picture thing and be like, eh. and then the other part of it with Harden is him taking like so the part of it of him taking less to facilitate these other moves is not a problem at all, as long as you're not either have a formal tacit agreement to compensate him with further with salary using bird rights or something else, or compensating him a different way right now, you know, using maybe a former owner's other companies. Like, those things would be big competitive balance problems. The, you know, like Dirk Nowitzki at different moments in time took a lot less money to have a more competitive Mavs team. Like, there is precedent on that part of it. It's just how you how you kind of tie it all together as a challenge. I mean, I always find it hilarious when we see big stars sacrifice money and people look down upon it. Like, isn't that what we always want them to do? Yeah, it's it, that. That's definitely fair. Um, I don't think we'll. We, I mean, I, I'd say we could probably each do a one and two of in the Atlantic Division. The best newcomer to his team. I, I don't think it's too complicated. Yeah, the Anthony Melton. Yeah. Of course, number one <laughs> in my heart. Yeah, I mean, I would say probably, like, if he's healthy, it's Brogdon, but he won't be, so it's Brunson. I, I think it's Brunson over Brogdon to me, even if even if Brogdon is healthy, just because he's, you know, like, depending on what exactly the Celtics need. But it's it's those two guys. What about you, Mr. Weiss? Uh, I mean, yeah, Brunson's the obvious one. Like, he's, he's better at this point, and he's in such a crucial role. So he's the biggest, for sure. Uh, it'll be funny when Otto Porter wins Toronto at Game 7 in the Conference Finals after they trade for Kevin Durant, and then we'll be like, oh, it was Otto Porter all along. But, yeah, it's, it's clearly Jalen Brunson. Uh, Otto Porter's place, I mean, this is just how the Raptors have been the last couple of years, and I don't mean this is a criticism of Masai and their front office in the slightest. I don't know how all these pieces fit together, but I am somewhat confident that they will. And also, Otto Porter going to a place where he, you know, they can use him, but that he's not essential, like, day to day. 
could be very good for him. That was actually very positive for Porter on the Warriors, where when he was ready to go, they could use him, but when but they didn't need to force him out there. We kind of talked about this with Brogdon, but I think that's really important with Porter as well. Yeah, he makes a lot of sense there for you know very much the same kind of reasons that he made a lot of sense in Golden State. Like it's going to be very similar for him, very similar for them. He's going to be able to do like the shape shifty kind of stuff that Nick Nurse likes to do on defense because he's smart. He knows how to move without the ball. He can shoot, stand still, movement. Like he can, you know, move the ball when he needs to close out. Like it's just going to make a lot of sense, especially because you know he's six nine and so is everybody else on that team. Yeah, he's the, he's an official Masai Ujiri center because he's six nine and because he can shoot. And what I love is that it gives them so much flexibility to make a Durant deal and include their core star and still have the complementary pieces they would need around Durant to make their system work. And for the Raptors, like, I mean, we don't need to talk about a ton about them with KD, but I, what you just got into is so unusual where they have a bunch of different players that Brooklyn could potentially be interested in and that you could put in various permutations. And the most important element of that for me with them and the Celtics is you can put together an acceptable trade if I were in Sean Mark's shoes for Durant that does not make them that does not take them out of title contention and like that's the real line that you're trying to go after and I mean you could go back to Jimmy Butler on the heat that was part of their intention was like can we add this player and still be good or various different iterations over the years you know Paul George with the Clippers is another example there where it was like they gave up a lot but they didn't give up what put them in the mix even though they haven't you know made a conference finals to this point with those guys. And so with the Raptors and the Celtics, I think they can be confident that they can make a Durant deal, give up even players that are helping them right now and still be damn good. Well, that's they kind can... of the whole point of trading for him, right? Like right. nobody's going to trade for him if they're not still a title contender after the deal. Right. But that's, but that's to me why that's what narrows the field. Like, I mean, and it's also, you know, having the acceptable players, like that's a part of why the Suns were always a really tough fit there was because they didn't have that many players that both the Nets were interested in and that would also satisfy this constraint. Yeah, Toronto, it's like both Toronto and Boston, if you can just make it two core starters and a pick or two or whatever, I think that that works. If it's more than that, you're stripping down your team pretty bare where, like, at least in Boston's situation, they're already the favorite right now. And I don't know, right now it's hard to find another team that could possibly get Durant that kind of pulls them above Boston if they get Durant. So Toronto, I think, like, they, they have more incentive to make this happen than Boston does for sure. But Toronto, like if they had to include three of their starters, I think they're too thin at that point to clearly be that much better of a team. So it really only makes sense if they do two of them. Yeah, I guess the only team that I could see, like if they got Durant, it might catapult them over uh, Boston is from the other conference. New Orleans? Oh, no. I was going to say Denver, but it would have to involve oh, sure. Michael, Michael Porter Jr. going to the Nets, which would mean that Ben Simmons would also have to be traded. And like maybe Ben Simmons would be in the same trade somehow. Like it gets way too complicated, but Denver with Jokic, Durant, and Murray, uh, I, I think would do it. The, the Nets trading for a different mercurial forward with back issues would be pretty <laughs> incredible, especially because their games, even though at times it looked like they might be more similar when they were like high school age, becoming so different. Divergent is would be would be fat, like just just beyond wild. If if Porter didn't miss all of last season with a back injury, he would be the guy that I think would make the most sense in a trade like this. But obviously, like you just kind of can't do that right now. I, I've had New, I've had New Orleans as my pie in the sky Durant destination in terms of like oh that fit would be would be so much fun to see. But Denver is certainly in that conversation as well. And I, I feel like you want to see New Orleans aesthetically just because like KD next to 
Jokic is such a weird fit. Like the two best high post players in the game play next to each other would be weird. And it would I feel like the pace would be sluggish. But putting Zion and KD together, that would be so much fun. That would be amazing to watch. The last question I usually ask in the kind of off-season review part of this podcast is the rookie you're most excited to see. Off the cuff, this is the first time I can recall, at least, you guys might remember this, that an entire division doesn't have a single first-round pick. So I will change this. Are there any rookies in this division that you're excited to see? Not really. <laughs> I like Christian Coloco is exciting just because the Raptors have a seven foot center, so that'll be fun. And he blocked a bunch of shots in summer league, which was fun. Yeah, but he's probably not even going to really play for them this year anyway. He'll probably be at the nine oh five. Then we can transition into the season preview part of this podcast. As things stand right now, of course, there are a lot of things that ways that things change, and we'll talk about we'll talk about some of those. We'll start with Mr. Dubin here. You can use whatever criteria you want just share it with the listeners rank these teams one to five yeah i mean this goes back to don't think this division is like remotely finished yet so it's really hard like i think that boston is pretty clearly a step above philly and toronto who are pretty clearly a step above new york and brooklyn and i just don't know what order to put like philly and toronto in because i don't know nest like what if toronto makes a kd deal um does that then move them ahead i mean probably and then new york and brooklyn like we just don't know who's going to be on those rosters like like I, I don't think that a move by any of those teams necessarily puts them above the teams ahead of them but i also don't know which order to put those two teams in because i don't know who's going to be on the teams I would do Boston is probably cemented at number one, depending on how a KD deal to Toronto could be structured. Uh, I think it's there's I I would say that there's a greater than 50 percent chance that or probably greater than like 60 percent chance that KD is in the Atlantic division. Toronto and Boston seem to be the two best candidates to make the move for him. He just went or he he apparently just went scorched earth on the Brooklyn situation. And Joe Sy basically came out and said, we're going to trade him. So he's probably on the move. Kyrie, it seems like it's more like likely he's going to stay and he's ready to come back to Brooklyn at this point unless the Lakers are going to cough up that second first round pick or Brooklyn's just willing to accept one first round pick it seems like that's that's what's happening so Brooklyn because they're going to probably get really good players back for KD and either keep Kyrie or move him um, either way I still feel like Brooklyn is pretty close to that like they're I would put them at the same level as Toronto at this point assuming Toronto like you know kind of hedging on whether Toronto gets KD but I think with everyone they have coming back with the potential for Simmons to be a huge playmaker. I, I still have Brooklyn at that level, so Philly would be number two, and then Toronto and Brooklyn on that same tier, and then the Knicks are like 14 tiers below that before they execute the Mitchell trade, which it seems like it's most likely that, I feel like it's most likely that Mitchell plays for the Knicks before the season is over, compared to staying in Utah. That, that just seems like there's a lot of momentum for that deal to eventually get done. Yeah, my thing with Brooklyn is, like, we let's say that, that, that Kyrie doesn't get traded. We still don't know, like, if him or Simmons is going to play, like, just, I, I don't know how to account for any of this stuff. Well, and, and also, like, what is their defensive identity? Do they even have one? Like, they, they could definitely oh, they be. Don't have one. They could also, be. Also, who's the coach? Like, <laughs> do they, they even do they even have a coach? Yeah. Is their coach Wanda Durant? <laughs> By the way, that would be or, amazing. Or Kyrie's stepmom. Yeah. Or well, yeah, but I don't think she could be agent slash coach. That might be a problem. That's true. That's the only, that's the only reason that doesn't work. Only reason. Um, yeah. Yes, I, I think I'll go Boston 1. Then, I mean, yeah, the real question. So I would say as things stand right now, 
Philly, Toronto, then Brooklyn, but it's very easy to see that sliding around. I could see Brooklyn even falling below the Knicks, depending on how things go, but I don't expect that. I think that Cy Marks are looking for more of a near-term thing, which I think is a huge mistake. Like, I think if you're going to trade Kevin Durant, just... You're not going to be. You're not going to be at that tier anymore. There's no way to make a Kevin Durant deal and still be there. So go younger, skew that way if you can, unless you can pull Jalen Brown. In which case, then maybe you can start to slide a little bit. But even you know, like, do you want to stay in the Kyrie Irving business and all that type of stuff? The problem is, how do you get out of the Kyrie Irving business? No, like, who's giving you anything to get themselves into the Kyrie Irving business other than the Lakers? And like, do you really want to be in the pay Russell Westbrook to stay home until the All Star break? business like I, I don't know about that i mean if i'm brooklyn i would ask for scotty barnes straight up for kevin durant and then trade Kyrie for one lakers first if that's what it comes to and then buy out russell westbrook and just start from there oh uh, see i think you got to hang on to him for the contract to see if you could like get that something too, yeah. like at the deadline but then like you could wind up in a toxic situation there too I also think that Brooklyn should be more, like, it seems like they're way less comfortable having a bad record this year. Like, it, to me, it seems like they're, like, you, you could say they're kind of choosing between three paths, the KD plus Kyrie path, the non-KD or maybe non-Kyrie and staying competitive path, and then just, like, kind of tearing it all down. I still think path one is the best of those three, but I think that they're preferring two over three, which I think is a mistake. And like, yeah, Houston gets the better of their pick in Brooklyn, which means Brooklyn's not getting the number one selection, but it at least can open the, it can open the door for other stuff. And like, you can, you can potentially like work things out. To me, the way to get out of the Kyrie Irving business, depending on what happens with Durant, is just letting him walk next year if this doesn't work out. Like, you see where this year goes, you do everything like that. If a team makes you a great offer, then of course you can engage with it. But yeah, that is, that is there. Um, I think in some ways this is an interesting question. We'll start with Mr. Weiss. I'm talking about the best, the eight teams here, not the play-in and all that, all that stuff. Though play-in is fun. How many teams from the Atlantic Division make the final eight? The best, the make the eight-team Eastern Conference playoffs. Should be half of them, I think. I mean, it, it, Brooklyn's weird because, like, Brooklyn is a, a shit show of a uh, operation, or they have been, but they just have so much talent that's supposed to be coming back. It's just hard to imagine them not making the eight seed at a minimum, and then every, then uh, Philly, uh, Toronto, and Boston are a lock. And if the Knicks manage to trade for Donovan Mitchell, they have a very good chance of getting up to that eight seed. Yeah, I would say uh, Boston, Philly, Toronto are locks, and then I think you get at least one of Brooklyn, New York, depending on how the trades shake out. So I would also go with four. Like I, I feel like the the over under is like four and a half, right? Yeah, like, definitely. Especially in some ways when you consider what you know that it seems like Brooklyn wants to be more competitive in the absence of KD. So like there is a possibility that that we have three kind of lock teams and that we get a fourth one way or the other. And yeah, so I, I think it's four as well. Also, the possibility of an injury kind of sliding things around, but the, you know, like there, there's a distinct possibility that an injury knocks an East, one of these Atlantic Division teams out, but that the team that replaces them is a different Atlantic Division team. So because right. of, because of where everything goes. So yeah, I think four is, four is fair. I, I would go three over five just because there are, you know, a bunch of other good teams in the conference, you know, like the Bucks and the Heat are probably going to make it in. And so then it's, you know, competing with the, the Cavs and the Bulls and the Hawks and potentially some other teams that could break out, you know, like, or maybe the Wizards have a better year. So I, I, I think the Atlantic teams are better placed for that, but I don't think it's a guarantee. 
Yeah, I, I think I would go with three over five also. Like, it's it's really tough to get all five teams in your division into the playoffs. Right. Like, and, and also, like, you have to be healthy, you know. Yeah, so. like, if Cleveland's healthy, they're, like, their good players have so much room to grow and to becoming just enough, taking another step that that's been a lot better right there. And then Atlanta just added to Jante Murray for, and didn't really lose much. So there's, that's, what's great is the East is once again at least nine deep with really good teams. It is great. Uh, and so for the last question, uh, we could start with Mr. Dubin. Players that you think will break out the way that I've defined this over the years is players that we will be talking about meaningfully differently a year from now when we do this podcast than we are right now. All right. So I, I looked it up and I picked three guys last year. Um, it was Tyrese Maxey, which worked out pretty yep. well. Uh, Emmanuel Quigley, which didn't work out because the coach like refused to play him at point guard because he decided he's going to play Alec Burks there instead. Uh, and OG Ananobi, I picked for the second consecutive year. And the, the injuries and everything else sort of prevented that from happening. Um, for the same reason that I picked Maxi and Quickly last year, I'm going to pick Quentin Grimes this year because he was one of the two good for summer league guys heading into his second season. And that's usually a pretty good sign that you're going to uh, make a pretty significant jump up. So I'm taking him. I'm taking DeAnthony Melton. And I am going with OG Ananobi for the third consecutive year. It's finally going to happen here. Yes. Uh, for me, I would say, oh, God, um, I would start with RJ Barrett. Just I think the growth that we saw in the second half of the season, another offseason to work. Uh, another ball handler to at least take, you know, to, to just help grease their offense just a little bit. I like the potential for him to take another step forward. So I'll put him on there. Um, I guess Gary Trent, just, just cause like OG Ananobi is always the best pick. Like that's not fair. You got to take this pick and I can't repeat the same as you. So <laughs> I guess, I guess I'll go with Gary Trent. I mean, I, I really enjoyed his game and I just feel like Toronto is going to be even better this year and he's just going to get more shine. And then. The other one is really tough. I mean, there's just nobody in Brooklyn that gets me excited. With Boston, I mean, hey, maybe it'll be Malcolm Brogdon. Maybe Malcolm Brogdon being a key player on a major winning team is going to really catapult his his like kind of Q rating around the league. I'll throw out and a couple. Off, and obviously Tyrese Maxey is, just continues to evolve into a stud. I, I, I've been very impressed with Tyrese Maxey. I'll throw out a couple of guys. I mean, I'll echo a lot of the ones that you mentioned. They're all well, well thought out as we would expect. Precious Achua, I think he could end up having a really nice year for the Raptors. And like the the way that he was at times a true destroyer defensively, like I think that could be really, really good for them. And his offensive game had these has these super bizarre wrinkles to it, but I think those can get cleaned up in time with coaching and with Achua. Like he has a, a ton of physical talent, so I could see him really growing there. For D'Anthony Melton, for me, it's more just like other people appreciating what I'm already obsessed with. But like that, I think could yeah. be if he can do that on another good team and like potentially be in the closing five for the Sixers as they're going to maybe a conference finals or at least the second round of the playoffs. Like that isn't, I don't think that's something people were expecting when he signed that contract. And you could say it's somewhat similar with Daniel House, who's a, a good player doing that. I mean, I think Hartenstein, I think right now he's better than Mitchell Robinson. That will change a lot over the course of the year, but he could do that. I, I really like Grimes as a potential suggestion there. And then the last one I'll mention, this is, again, it's, you know, the criteria of talking about the player differently now than, than we will a year from now is Jalen Brown. 
Like I, whether it's in this, whether it's on the Celtics or theoretically on the Brooklyn Nets, I think this might be the like, oh yeah, he's an all-star, maybe not the best player in a championship team, but firming up his place in a way that Jason Tatum already did. That's a good one. I mean, I think it's highly likely we'll be talking about Ben Simmons differently right a year from now. Mm. That's true. Um, in, in either direction, <laughs> depending on what happens. Like, Yeah, he's a breakout or an outbreak. Yeah. Um, and- <laughs> The Jalen Brown one is good. Hartenstein is pretty good, too. I want to talk a little bit more about the Barrett one, though, because I think it depends on who you're talking to, what you, what people think he is or could be. Um, but I, I find it hard to see, like, the this is R.J. Barrett's all-star season season coming this year, just because I feel like whether or not they make a trade for Donovan Mitchell, he's going to be, like, at best the third option offensively, unless they decide, like, Randall is just done, and then you could possibly see it. I just don't think that the the setup is necessarily right for him to have a full breakout this year and it's more like okay this guy's still good he's still progressing and we're not necessarily talking about him a lot differently at the end of the year than we are right now and it's just like you know the next step in the evolution kind of thing yeah i feel like he's in the kind of a og ananobi track where it's just like he's continuing to build up towards being a high-end starter and maybe this is just be the year where i mean i just feel like the progress he made over last year if he's just starting from the position where he left off last year that just at least climbs up climbs him up into an echelon where people are looking at him as like this guy is a core foundation piece you could feel confident about and we're just i don't think the public is there yet at this point i think the one thing that could change my opinion is if he signs an extension before the season then no matter what happens this year people will think about him differently than they did before because it's all going to be viewed through the prism of whatever he got paid yeah that's that's a fair point well i I, we had a great discussion i will thank both of you for taking the time to come on thanks for having us it's always a good time thank you jared and danny uh and if feels weird because I feel like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> Thanks again to Jared Dubin and Jared Weiss for taking the time to come on. You can read Jared Dubin's work typically at 538, but he also does excellent work on the NFL for CBS, and you should follow him on Twitter at jadubin5, J-A-D-U-B-I-N, and then the number five. You can check all that out. He also has an authory page, which you can see there. And then Jared Weiss is my colleague at The Athletic. You can read his excellent work there. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. Love having both of them on and thought we got into some very interesting ground here in terms of kind of assessing these teams, you know, the Knicks with Jalen Brunson, I thought was particularly fascinating, but really all of them. And where where the Nets are going is still a confounding mystery, but love having them on. If you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, really whatever podcast player you use. I really do appreciate that. Never know when it's going to come out. It just depends on my availability, guest availability, and whatever podcast player, you know, Spotify, Apple, any of those really, really do help it. Appreciate it. Also, you can help other people find the show. That is leaving a reading, a review. That is word of mouth, social media, elsewhere. Hey, you like this specific episode or the show in general. Really do appreciate that. And even though Real GM Radio has been around a long time, still helping other people find the show is much appreciated. The single most important thing for this show and any other that has them, though, is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is Bet Online, and you can use the CLNS50 promo code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and to tell them that you came from us. So hopefully they continue to advertise on this fair podcast. As I mentioned in the intro, partially, mostly due to me being on vacation later in the offseason, I am actually recording a lot of these division capsules 
previews, but due to advertising stuff and everything else, they will be released weekly. So I have three of the six already recorded, not put together and made all fancy and pretty, but ready for that. And then the hope is to record the other three next week if some get delayed and I need to do them while I'm gone. So be it. But so that means you, I already know that you're going to have content for the next few weeks. Um, and, but you do that already. Real Jam Radio does always come out. The other ways you can support me slash, I guess, the podcast in a more indirect way can check out my other work, Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, still going strong with Nate. We're going to be doing off-season regrades. We just, from 21, we just did our 22 off-season grades over the last few weeks, which are always illuminating experiences and going back through and listening to what we said and thinking about how things have changed is always a valuable experience. It's part of why Nate and I do what we do. We're also continuing to do Spotify Live throughout the offseason. Might take a little bit of a break when I'm out of the country, but we'll have to see there. That will typically be Tuesdays at 6 Eastern, 3 Pacific. Maybe we'll have some time shifts, but I think we'll probably try to keep to that as best we can. And then you can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I have a couple things that I'm writing now that need to get fully finished, but then I also had collaborative pieces. I believe that was last week with Kelly Eco and Will Guillory. And then I have a couple others that are in process on that front as well. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue and at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.